Chet Shazuski. Welcome to the new school. Um, Chet is the founder and executive director of the Global Green Grants Fund, an international environmental foundation that makes small grants to grassroots environmental groups in developing nations around the world. Since 1993, Global Green Grants has made in excess of 3,000 grants in over 100 countries, totaling about $10 million. Chet has helped to pioneer international regranting as a simple and effective means for private foundations, companies, and donors to support the growth of community-based civil society organizations in developing economies and emerging democracies. Chet, how did you come to start Global Green Grants? What, what was the inspiration for it? Well, Michael, I think um, sometimes it's a little hard to pinpoint exact cause and effect of these things, but it's not impossible for me, but it was a slow process of um, being involved for many years in the 1970s and 80s in environmental and peace organizing uh, here in Colorado, where I'm based, and then later on in San Francisco, when I was the director of the Greenpeace office there in the late 80s and early 90s. It led me to um, take a hard look at um, what were the ingredients necessary for social movements to succeed. And, of course, there's a small but important part that money plays. And so in the time that I was at Greenpeace in San Francisco, increasingly I was asked to help find small amounts of money for grassroots environmental activism in, the, in the, the developing countries of Latin America and the Pacific Rim. And I was able to find donors who were interested in making those small grants, but I found it uh, quite a challenge to figure out how to make their tax-deductible gifts get to grassroots groups in those countries without taking an inordinate portion of the uh, money in administrative costs. And so having done that informally um, during the time I was at Greenpeace, I realized that there was, a, there was an unmet need for both uh, U.S. environmental donors and certainly for the uh, emerging grassroots environmental groups in developing countries that could be filled by uh, an organization like Global Green Grants Fund. So after informally um, helping donors move money in that fashion for several years in 1993, um, I, I sat down with a couple of donors who I thought might want to test the model and see if it could come to scale. And so we uh, initially set it up as a donor collaborative of the Tides Foundation in 93 and operated that way until about 2000 when we thought we had enough experience to know what to do next. So that's pretty um, uh, quick snapshot of where it came from. Our topic today is the role of intuition in understanding social movements, but your thinking about this developed uh, using intuition in global green grants. And as I understand it, you found intuition really an essential part of delivering small grants uh, to grassroots organizations all over the world. Could you explain why intuition is such an important ingredient in Global Green Grants? Well, intuition um, is important for several reasons, um, uh, Michael. It's important because it's fast, which also makes it cheap comparatively to 
other decision-making models. But most importantly, it's actually uh, a very effective tool for making decisions in ambiguous and rapidly changing situations where uh, uh, a solution to a problem is not clear, which is essentially um, the definition of um, what a social movement is trying to do. And um, so I would say that it's important in, in grant making and therefore to the Global Green Grants Fund only to the extent or mostly to the extent that intuition is important to the um, uh, strategic uh, direction and implementation of social movements themselves. Um, they use intuition, and I, I want to um, try to separate the two, the, the dynamics of social movements um, and the variables that um, might determine whether they succeed or fail um, is one of those puzzles uh, that we haven't solved yet, and so we can't really say what it is that uh, definitely makes the chances of social movement success greater or lesser than um, than other variables. But um, what we do know is that um, uh, we've, we, we have social movements happening all the time. Most of them don't succeed, um, and some of them fall into certain kinds of traps, which we can go into later. But um, for those people who want to fund social movements, whatever they are, there's a certain kind of understanding that um, is enhanced, I think, by recognition, first of all, that we don't have a good scientific understanding of how social change happens. And yet it does happen, and therefore our intuition is one of our best guides. And in this case, it's the best guide for how to use the small amount of financial resources available to those movements. We're using the term intuition uh, in an important way here. Do you have a, a definition or a description of what you mean by intuition? Well, um, I suppose um, I don't have a really concrete one. I, I could think about it a bit and come up with one, but I haven't done that. Um, but I think of it as um, the decision-making tool that we use when we don't know what to do. In other words, in the absence of uh, of clear um, uh, proof about what a, what decision will lead to the result that you want, and as I've said, that's a, that's often the case uh, in social movements and social change organizing is that it's not clear what moves will produce what results, um, and so uh, intuition I think uh, taps on taps into um, a way of knowing and understanding about things which are um, are complex and adaptive and often difficult to explain to others who aren't, especially cross-culturally, who aren't embedded in the culture or subculture as a social movement is. And so the definition that is operative for me in, in applying it in um, our grant making is that it's a way to um, uh, tap into the best insights of people who have, by um, devoting their lives to a cause, have gained experience and insight that others don't seem to have. They have an uncanny way of taking what they know um, 
them, even what they're uncertain about, and identifying opportunities. So there's an important relationship here, even though I'm not being very clear about this definition, between um, intuition, whatever its definition, and what it does to help people identify unique opportunities for change. You've made grants in over 100 countries, uh, over 3,000 grants. So that's a, a pretty extraordinary record. In fact, the Council on Foundations gave you the Robert W. Scrivener Award for Creative Philanthropy, which is one of the few awards in philanthropy that I'm aware of that uh, I would uh, wish on any friend of mine. And uh, so the question I have is, when you're operating, let's just take a specific country, can you give us an example of a country where you are making grants where you have seen the intuitive uh, capacities of the person in that country or people in that country responsible for distributing the global green grants in action? Can you describe, give us a, a picture of what that uh, intuitive process actually looks like in a country in action? I'll try to do that. I, it's always hard for me to find examples that I think illustrate um, uh, intuition at work in social movements, even though it's one of the most important um, uh, features of it. I think there are some, there are some, both for the definition and for examples of uh, intuition, there are some good resources I just want to point out, Michael, in particular, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's 2005 bestseller, Blink, um, is uh, really a good collection of examples in many fields where um, uh, experts and non-experts alike seem to have an understanding of something that goes beyond um, uh, explanation. Um, and there are several other good books, including one by a guy, uh, a professor at Hope College named David Myers on tu intuition, its power and its peril, I think it's called. Um, and there are several other good things that include uh, both definitions and um, examples. But in terms of global green grants and the environmental movement groups that we support, uh, I think that the best way to describe it is that there is no formula for organizing a successful social movement that works every time. And if there were, it would be used all the time, and it's not. Um, uh, the most important examples of that problem are things like uh, development and the inequity in the world that is really still poorly understood and, and poorly explained um, in terms of the differential in economic development in different parts of the world, despite some intuitive and counterintuitive indicators, uh, we still don't really have a good understanding of, of how uh, development happens, and we also don't have a good understanding, therefore, of how sustainable development can happen. So the local leaders who comprise the sort of... Um, uh, nerve, nervous system of social movement um, ha develop a, a, a sense, a, a sensibility about how to um, uh, allocate resources in their movement, whether it's human resources or, um, or um, intellectual resources or media resources or other things that they use to try and get their point across and achieve their goals. 
Um, the financial resource part often comes in last because it's the last thing that they, um, generally the last thing they need and the thing they have the poorest access to, which is where green grants comes in. We try to lower the barriers to access for um, um, small grants made rapidly in difficult circumstances based on the best advice of people who are pre-positioned to know um, what could make a difference in a movement. So at the risk of going on too long with this answer, let me just say that there are um, a couple of um, examples that I can give. One is a, ma- an identi- is, is a matter of opportunity. Um, it's a grant example in China in 2000 when overnight we made a $500 grant to enable our Chinese colleagues to um, pay the royalties and dub uh, a one-hour documentary on climate change in order to take advantage of an opportunity that even they didn't know how it occurred, which was for them to recommend a program on central Chinese television to air on Earth Day uh, 2000, the first time Earth Day had been celebrated in China, and that the $500 investment in that uh, produced viewership that some people estimate could be up to six or 800 million people. Wow. And so there was no way that we could have tried to make something like that come together. Uh, it just did. And what it took was um, someone with $500 and a credit card and access to the CBC that, that owned the rights and that, that cleared the way and, and maybe made an impression on as many as a half a billion people and, um, at, at an early stage of, of the debate on climate change in China. Who was the partner in China that uh, got in touch with you and, and made that request, and what kind of person is he? Well, it's our Chinese coordinator, uh, a man named Wenbo, who was the founder in the early 1990s of what's become known as the Green Students Forum, one of the earliest networks of campus-based um, environmental activists in China. And he and I had come to know each other over a period of several years and had a high level of of, uh, trust in one another. And so I knew that when he asked for this, which he rarely did, it was um, an extraordinary uh, opportunity. And so we were able to work very quickly on the basis of um, uh, that past working relationship. He knew implicitly and intuitively that's why we were here. And while he wasn't sure it could happen, he knew that um, if it could happen, it could happen only with um, uh, a a pre-existing high-trust relationship like that. There are not many grantmakers working successfully in China yet. Uh, How did you get started in China, and what have you learned from your grantmaking in China? Well, Michael, I think it's partly serendipity and and partly strategy. Um, After all, the one thing that we all have to, I think, take a closer look at is how uh, in nature everything is connected. We know that. That's one of the key principles of ecology. And yet um, environmental grant making is confined almost exclusively to the United States, about $3.5 $3.5 billion a year in foundation resources that are devoted to uh, environmental conservation, environmental justice, and the whole range of environmental issues. Uh, virtually all of it is, is limited to the United States, even though many of the world's biggest and most 
quickly and cheaply solvable environmental problems are outside of the U.S. And so recognizing that, we began in the early 90s looking around the world for who is doing the best work and who is uh, seem to have that sense of um, how to use the very limited resources we had. At the point we started making grants in China, which I believe was about 1995, we were probably making um, only about $25,000 a year in grants. But um, some the, the specific way I think I connected with Wenbo is he was in the U.S. on some sort of fellowship and working with the Snow Leopard Trust in Seattle. And he had somehow heard about us. This is the way social networks work, of course. And social network analysis and mapping is really one of the things that fascinates me um, uh, sort of retroactively about what we've done with this network of 125 advisors around the world, of which Wenbo is one. And he coordinates now half a dozen others in China. But we came together in that way. And then we met. Uh, we, we had many long talks on the phone, and eventually we met, and I went there and visited him a couple of times, uh, including in 1999 when he decided to take a year off from his activism to complete his studies in Korea because Wenbo knew that 1999 on the 10th anniversary of Tiananmen Square would not be a time of much space for activism of any kind, and indeed that was the case. So he had that sense arranged for um, this year-long um, fellowship in Korea. So we met there. We, we met then with some Korean groups. Um, and he just is a consummate networker and has now connected many thousands of young students over a period of 15 years and many of them have gone on to other places and are now leaders in the emerging um, small, medium, and even large-sized environmental groups in China. So how much uh, are you putting into China a year now, roughly? I think this year will be close to $150,000, not a huge amount. After all, we're talking about China here. But our model is such that the average size grants for, green, for a, a, a global green grant fund uh, advisor anywhere in the world is about 3700 U.S., about $3,700. In China, the amount has been much smaller, uh, around uh, $1,000, because, uh, first of all, it goes much further. But also the kinds of groups we've been supporting um, are, tend to be very small, um, well, not small by in terms of membership numbers, they tend to be um, uh, sort of loose networks of students, almost all students, um, student groups is where we focused our funding there. Um, and they don't have a lot of financial needs. They usually have a university base with an office and a faculty sponsor and even some access to other university resources. And they tend to do the kinds of projects that we may have seen in the U.S. in the 1960s or 70s. It's you know, environmental education, uh, litter cleanup, uh, um, you know, nature clubs, things that may not seem like they're on the cutting edge uh, in in the Western world, but are indeed on the political cutting edge of any kind of opposition voice in China. So the amounts are small. With a $1,000 grant, that means we'll make 150 grants in China this year. Um, so the money gets spread very thinly across many uh, uh, dozens of campuses, and I understand there's 
there's almost um, 600,000 university students in Beijing alone on some two dozen university campuses. And almost all of them now have small uh, nature clubs or environmental clubs. And increasingly, the students are sticking with that career choice after they leave, and finding a way to support themselves is one of the things that we've um, taken an interest in. And so for a comparatively small amount of money, I like to think that our grants of $3,700 or our maximum typically is $5,000, but that's enough to support a full-time activist for a year in many developing countries. Let's move from China to another part of the world. What about Africa? What have you been doing in Africa? Well, like China, Michael, which is has been neglected by U.S. donors, Africa's um, uh, actually seen a, is is the one continent where we've seen a, a decline in um, standard of living over the last 20 years, and uh, a, a pretty radical um, uh, fluctuation in the amount of outside aid coming into Africa. Um, we prioritize those countries that are um, the least developed and the least served by donors, especially in the environmental field. But we also take a very broad definition of what is environmental, and that's enabled us to address both classic environmental conservation, biodiversity conservation, and species extinction issues, and wildlife conservation issues. At the same time, we also uh, address the relationship to livelihoods and economic development, sustainable development. And one of the key links between those things is a human rights lens that we use in our grant making. So the reason that we um, uh, are focusing uh, on, on China is that it's neglected by other donors. It, it does have a it has a rich biodiversity of global importance. You just said China. Do you mean Africa? I'm sorry. Uh, I meant Africa. Yeah. Um, that um, it's also a, um, a laboratory uh, for a failed experiment in economic development um, and in many ways in public health, too. And so we try to play our small role. Uh, I think our overall grant-making in Africa is probably uh, about the same as it is for China, about $150,000 a year, divided up among three uh, regional advisory boards, one for Southern Africa, one for East Africa, one for West Africa, each of which has between three and five members. And they can make grants anywhere in their region of the continent on any issue, whether it, it may on the surface be appear to be more related to um, women's rights or economic development or the relationship between, say, um, wildlife conservation and um, ecotourism and um, some some rights-based issues. So we allow, uh, in fact, we expect and encourage our advisors to uh, take off the the blinders that socialization by Western donors um, has given them. Many times, our advisors are fairly sophisticated, well-educated. Um, NGO employees who play an intermediary role for us by having very broad peripheral vision of what's needed in their region and what um, isn't being uh, addressed by any other donor. Um, They sometimes work for these international NGOs, sometimes they work for domestic NGOs, or sometimes 
they are doctors or lawyers or they teach in a university. But they're in a unique position to both um, do a very quick assessment of the broad needs and the special opportunities in their region, and they're also able to watch money pass them by, which in many of these countries is not uh, anything that anyone can take for granted. These are folks that have some level of financial stability themselves, um, and they know the needs and opportunities just beyond their reach. Can you give us an example in Africa? Uh, let me think for a moment. Um, we've done quite a lot of grants in the Niger Delta, um, where oil development has um, widened the gap between the rich and poor while degradating the environment. And there's a very important but small group there um, in Nigeria that's um, been a grantee of ours in the past and has sort of shown us the leadership that they've played in that region. Um, it's environmental rights action. Uh, it's comprised mostly of uh, professionals who are volunteers with this organization. In other words, one of the leaders is an architect um, uh, who who we've come to have very high regard for. Um, Nemo Bassi is his name. They're affiliated with Friends of the Earth International, and they work on a range of issues related to the environment and climate change, but particularly um, oil and oil revenue to their country. So we make, once again, a lot of small grants to um, nascent groups in Nigeria who are working to address uh, both the environmental pollution, the public health, threats from gas flaring, for instance, from oil pipelines, and the related human rights issues um, and uh, the underlying economic development issues. So I don't have a specific grant in mind. Mm -hmm. It's very often people ask me, you know, for that. And when we, we make almost 700 grants a year, it's very hard for you to, to keep track. To keep track and then not get attached to one and mm -hmm. use it as the only example. <laughs> So what I've just described for you is a kind of uh, uh, intuitive regional strategy for the Niger Delta that people like Nemo um, are better able to describe in very precise ways what their strategy is and how well it's working and how they're reintegrating what they learn through the process. But what I've learned is that I can't know it all. That's part of the point here is that no one can know what all these 125 people know, and no one can do what the 700 grantees that we fund each year can do. We all just trust each other to do our best, um, and where intuition comes in is a, is in a matter of trusting each other to to use our best skills and other assets to accomplish our goal, but without having to justify it or explain it to others who probably couldn't understand anyway. You know, one of the most extraordinary stories I've seen out of Africa recently uh, builds on the work of Wangari Maathai, who, of course, you know, uh, whose work on planting trees in Africa has been so extraordinary. But I'm not even sure that it's directly from her. And, and perhaps you saw the article. I think it was in the New York Times. But it was about how the entire ecology of a whole region of Africa had now been shifted and was visible by satellite because of the tree-planting activities of African women across a whole swath of Africa. Did you see that piece or not? 
I didn't, but I would be really interested yeah, in it. I, w- I will look for it, but I, I, I was just astonished by it because, of course, one of the critical issues that uh, we're addressing indirectly here is what Peter Goldmark, who was the head of the Rockefeller Foundation, talks about as the issue of going to scale. How do you get from a single wonderful uh, small grant or even a medium-sized grant to the kind of things that that shift whole ecological or social systems. And this was absolutely an example of how tree planting by women had shifted the ecology, the economy, uh, and the entire environment of a a very significant part of Africa. And I will look for that, uh, or if if anyone else uh, in the New School community sees it and forwards it to me, I'll... I'll send it out. I would, I would love to see that. Um, the story reminds me of one of my very favorite stories ever. Um, I read it. Uh, it was read to me probably first as a child. It's called, and maybe some of you know this, and it's probably come come across by many names over the years. It's called the man who planted hope, or no, planted trees and grew happiness. Is that it? Yes, that's right. Roughly right. Yeah. Uh, when we were planting the trees around the Commonwealth Garden, we sat on a hillside, and uh, Avis Rappaport, who was the one of the founding directors of the Commonwealth Garden, read us that wonderful story. Ah, well, it is a, it is a delightful story, and it it also is about um, you know one, there's many lessons in it, but one of the lessons that I took away is that you can never really know um, for sure how big an impact the small things you do might have. Why don't you tell the story briefly so that people know well, what it's, we're talking it's, about? Well, it's hard. You know, the story itself is a, is a common one. It's just told so poetically. But as I recall, it's about a, a recluse kind of in the Pyrenees um, after World War I who, who just took it upon himself to, first of all, collect acorns and then sort them and, and, and uh, take the strongest ones and plant them. And he just wandered. He was sort of a gypsy, and he wandered for many years, replanting a whole area of the Pyrenees all by himself. And he never went back to where he'd come from. He just kept going forward, and it was only those who met him along the way who, you know, many years later told him, you know, there's a guy, there's a story about a guy back here years ago in this place. And he realized, well, that that had been him, and that he had helped restore this entire forest. And you read that as a child? I think so, yes. Yes. I was going to ask you, before we go back to intuition and social movements, uh, looking back on your life and the various uh, pieces of work that you've done uh, with uh, Greenpeace, uh, with the American Friends Service Committee, with the Rocky Mountain Peace and Justice Center, and with Global Green Grants Fund, do you have a sense of what your underlying mission in life is what your purpose is at the deepest level. Oh, Michael, I knew you'd go there. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question, and um, uh, I, I probably have to honestly say no. I, I don't. I mean, I have. I'm driven by something. That's for sure, and I don't know what. And I'm comfortable with that. Um, I suppose the best I can say is that. Um, I want to. I want to do my best to make a difference, and there's not a heck of a lot that I'm especially good at. Um, 
And so a lot of the last 25 years has been trying to figure out, well, what am I um, uniquely qualified to do? Or what problem can I understand well enough to devise um, uh, a simple solution for that would be valuable to many people? And I think the course of my activism from the 1970s on, and I suppose it's it's noteworthy that you know my activism didn't begin um, uh, slowly exactly. I mean, it began slowly in terms of thinking about issues and and trying to prioritize and decide where to apply uh, myself. I decided to stop the arms race. <laughs> and um, tell my, us more about that. How did that happen? Did did that come to you all at once, that you decided to stop the arms race? Well, I think that it came to me uh, gradually over a period of several years when I was living uh, in the Colorado Mountains, um, near not too far from where I live now, but spending a lot of time outdoors and, and spending most of my time reading everything I could get my hands on. And that time was uh, uh, a sort of... Uh, just prior to the peak acceleration of the the nuclear arms race, and so there was a lot of literature on it, but I knew nothing about the issues. But it just was clear to me this was a trump card, you know. Unless we dealt, if I so when I was thinking about, well, what do I want to work on? What kind of issues are important? Is it is it um, you know public lands conservation, or is it you know the threat of nuclear war? It's like what's about nuclear war? I mean, that's that you know makes all other. So I wanted to take on something um, hard or even impossible. And that's what led me, I suppose, uh, to the American Friends Service Committee and the Quakers who had been, uh, and, and it's my view that they still have taken on impossible tasks more consistently and more successfully than any small group um, in history. Starting with slavery. Exactly. That's and they played a critical role in the right. history of slavery. And there's no better example of the kind of fundamental social change that uh, is is in my vision, um, and that the environmental movement um, and several other movements are gradually moving toward. Is they're the they're analogous to the early um, stages of or maybe the early majority adopters of the abolition movement. And so I'm fascinated by those people who came at the very earliest stages of those movements. But for myself, that's how I, I jumped into it, and I also had thought about it a great deal before I did anything. And so the first thing I did was um, civil disobedience to block a, a railroad train full of uh, plutonium triggers leaving the Rocky Flats plant about 10 miles from where I now live. And I spent uh, the rest of the 70s and 80s um, trying to um, help end the arms race by first closing the Rocky Flats plant, which I got up every morning realizing was probably impossible, but, you know, I would I was devoted to that, and so that's what I would do. And at, after only 12 years, not, not uh, an entire lifetime, which is what I thought it was going to take, um, the plant actually closed. Goodness. And for the next 10 years, they tried to reopen it and never managed. And then for the last 10 years, they've been trying to clean up uh, the mess they made for, for 40 years and, um, and employed all 6,000 employees for 10 years to clean up the mess because they were the ones who made it. They knew best how to clean it up. So it's now closed, and it's a wildlife refuge, um, for better or worse, I suppose. Um, 
but the 14 tons of plutonium that was there for 40 years is now gone, buried underground, most of it. Some of it's still in nuclear warheads. And the arms race hasn't entirely ended, but it's certainly de-escalated a bit. Um, some would argue that it's more dangerous than ever because most people have forgotten about it. But that's a bit of that personal history for me that um, may or may not um, reflect on what motivates me in a in a um, a deep way. Is that what did you learn from the nuclear work that then informs the work that you're doing now? Well, um, I'll, I'll answer that, and I'll use it to come back to the question about the tree planting in Africa and Wangari Maathai's work, because I think it's all linked. Um, what I learned most of all is that we never really, that is we, those of us who worked on the Rocky Flats campaign and in other parts of the anti-nuclear power and disarmament movement, we never really knew what would work. We, didn't, we barely knew what we were doing. We understood the issues, in some cases, remarkably well. But we didn't know um, uh, very well how to change things. We had some sense of where the power lie and some um, motivation to speak truth to power. But we really didn't know uh, the cause and effect that would bring about the fundamental social change we were after. And so even though we succeeded in the way I just described, we did so without knowing exactly what worked and what didn't. And so I learned to get comfortable with not knowing. And, um, you know, there were points, as there always are, some things come more slowly and others come in pulses or impulses even, um, like my first political act to block a trainload of nuclear weapons. Um, but another time I remember in the mid-'80s when we had organized an event at Rocky Flats at which Tom Hayden was speaking. And so I was um, uh, too young to be active in the 60s, or at least I wasn't active. And so I had you know, an almost mythical view of Tom Hayden and who he was and what he did. At that point, he was in the California legislature, and he agreed to come out and speak. So we had a chance to spend several hours together, and he kind of did a quick triage of our campaign, um, which he knew a surprising amount about. Um, and he said, you know, you're going to win this one. And so here's what you do next. He said, they're, they're going to win, you're going to win, and they know it, and so they're going to spend the next uh, few years trying to confuse you about uh, what you did right and what you didn't so that you can't repeat it again. And I took that as, um, when I look back on it, it was really important advice that there were all kinds of people who became discouraged in the latter stages of that campaign, even though we were making progress, because it was so hard and it took so long and that there was all the evidence was pointing that in the opposite direction. Um, so what I learned from that that I took forward was that we needed a funding structure that understood those kind of um, uh, contradictions and ambiguities uh, and that trusted the people in the best position to identify opportunities that others couldn't see. I've said this in several ways. And to put money on the table, small amounts, so that uh, the risk was still comparatively low, but almost always the small amount was all that was needed. It was just the character with which it was offered, that it was made available, that made a difference. And that 
I could probably go back and identify 10 times over the course of the 12-year campaign to close Rocky Flats that I worked on it. There were probably not more than once a year where that kind of money would have made a difference. And some of the time it happened and some of the time it didn't. And so it was the growing number of missed opportunities that um, caused me to want to try and close the gap between the opportunities that organizers and activists saw all the time that they couldn't take advantage of because they simply didn't know anybody with more money than they needed on a day-to-day basis. And at the same time, I knew more and more people who had that kind of money, some of them not a lot more, but enough more to make a difference. I want to quote you from an article in Alliance magazine on intuition, trust, and a great river of money. And the quote is this, as long as we're in the realm of a thought experiment, I contend that the ideal system of philanthropy might require no applications, no metrics, just a river of money flowing from philanthropists to where it's needed. Yes, our work is complex, and it is vital to make good decisions. But I believe we could do just as well if we simply found 50 experienced and creative program officers and let them direct the entire river of money without so much as a cover letter or a concept paper. How would they do it? I believe they would know intuitively. Their experience would tell them who to talk to, how to evaluate potential solutions and players, and what levels of funding made sense. Yes, they'd make mistakes, yet the river of money might be twice the size it is today because we would reduce waste at both ends. So that's the idea. Yeah, and I think that there are examples of that at work in the world today, not enough or um, not large enough or moving fast enough. But when I listened to that, I thought, I want I want this is this is a good opportunity to come back to your earlier question about um, Wangari Maathai and the tree planting in Africa. And maybe this is a classic example of my own opportunism. Is that this is one of those opportunities? And I'll tell you a story, in a, a brief story, in just a sec. But um, there's an opportunity that's been missed for the last couple of years, and it drives me crazy because um, it came. It it, it it came from my experience in the following way. In 2005, I was on the program committee of the Environmental Grantmakers Association annual retreat and helped to arrange for two keynote speakers. One of them was Al Gore in his now infamous uh, slideshow on global warming. And the other was Wangari Maathai, who had just uh, received the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, and they spoke on consecutive days and uh, Gore presented his uh, his case for on, on climate change with his spectacular slideshow, and it's not spectacular by Hollywood standards. Now we've seen that. I don't know how anyone could make a movie about a slideshow, but they did. Um, and to see the power of that, even with a group of about 500 pretty sophisticated environmentalists and environmental grant makers, it was very powerful. Um, then Wangari Maathai, with her quite different approach as an African woman um, uh, who had for 30 years, um, twice as long as Al Gore, had been campaigning on climate change, been planting trees and organizing women to plant trees in Africa, had a story in her head uh, that she told to that group, 
with incredible charisma. In fact, I can hardly think of two people who more classically represent um, a wooden, stiff, kind of uncharismatic public speaker like Al Gore, and bless his heart for, try, for doing it anyway, and a naturally charismatic speaker like Wangari Maathai, who is motivated and inspired um, uh, almost magically to um, uh, you know, become one of the uh, most powerful women in Africa against all odds. And she had to tell this story um, about her, that what, what you were just referring to, Michael, that maybe now the New York Times has documented. She had seen uh, satellite photographs of um, the Sahara and, and the parts of, uh, North Afri- of, uh, of, of um, sub-Saharan Africa where they had been doing tree planting and witnessed the difference that it had made from these photographs. But she didn't have the photographs. I'm sorry for going on with this story, but anyway, she knew where to get the photographs. But after the meeting, um, I talked with her quite a bit about, okay, well, why don't we get somebody to pay to do a slideshow for you like Al Gore has got? Because you've got these wonderful stories with you know, equal evidence, but you have, haven't got the resources yourself to put together the slideshow. And so I took her around to meet with a couple of donors who were interested, but who said, you know, we just need a five-page proposal that outlines, you know, the cost, benefit of this, all the usual stuff. And the Greenbelt Movement, which is the organization that she um, uh, is affiliated with, just didn't have the capability to produce even the simplest proposal, even for green grants, you know, because we didn't know whether it would cost five hundred, five thousand, or, or uh, you know, $500,000 to do this kind of thing. I was quite sure that for you know ten or twenty thousand dollars we could get quite a spectacular show, and for such a charismatic woman who's invited to speak five days a week for years on end, she could just make herself so much more uh, impactful. But we couldn't find a donor to do it without this five-page proposal that they couldn't produce. Exactly. And so the opportunity was, I just sort of outlined it for you, and I was like, I can't believe nobody has done this, like Jeff Skoll did for Al Gore. Exactly. I want to come back to our core question about the role of intuition in social movements. And uh, my memory is that you have come across a number of researchers who share your deep interest in this question. Is, is that correct? Are there others who are asking about how intuition works in social movements? Well, uh, not quite, but, but, but close, Michael. I think that part of, um, part of the way this is working is that I'm interested in social movements, and I'm interested in what makes them successful. Um, and there's a small but important group of social movement scholars, mostly within sociology, who are studying social movements in kind of classic ways. But they haven't come up with much. <laughs> and that's where um, intuition comes in. So I'm sort of listening to the best, the best scholars on a subject say, you know, we don't understand this at all. And thinking that, well, then what are we supposed to do? You know, how do we... How do we eliminate the things that don't work and enhance the things that do if we know so little about it? So what I'm hoping is to bring some of these folks together. And by, by working with uh, both academics and uh, leading activists who are also interested, uh, of, of course, in, in, in uh, what works and what doesn't, uh, 
and better yet, if they can actually understand it and predict it in advance, and, of course, the funders of both. So it's a kind of interdisciplinary approach that I'm taking to get, to get um, uh, you know, conversation going among, uh, for example, the American Sociological Association has a variety of sub-disciplines, and one of them is what they call this section on collective behavior and social movements. And it's one of the biggest um, uh, subsections within the ASA, which has about 5,000 members, mostly university professors in sociology. And it's a, a field that's growing rapidly, yet it's uh, you know, uncovering many more questions than it is uh, providing answers. For example, um, there's some fascinating uh, problems, like the free rider problem, which essentially distills to this. If um, if someone uh, is choosing whether or not to join a social movement, especially when it's politically risky, which it usually is to some degree or another, why would they join the movement if they can reap the benefits if the movement succeeds, whether they join it or not? In other words, why not just free ride? And you know, economists say, well, they won't. They won't. You know, they won't take that risk personally. Um, you know, it's all about uh, personal benefit, and yet. Plenty of people do. Millions of people join movements, and it causes um, these scholars to scratch their heads to explain something that's counterintuitive. Um, and then there's the the prevailing theory about social movement success is um, uh, well, it's morphing really um, between um, what they call uh, mobilizing structures, particularly resource mobilization. That's where money comes in and uh, a theory that's been uh, prominent for the last 10 or 15 years about unexpected political opportunity being the most likely dependent variable in social movement outcomes. Anyway, I barely understand um, all of this, but I can tell you this, that activists hardly um, pay any attention to it. They just do what they do using their intuition. The scholars study them, trying to understand what makes uh, some of them successful and most of them not, and yet they all persist. And especially, why do the most intuitive answers to questions in in uh, social change seem not to be true? For instance, it would seem intuitive that the most oppressed people with the least to lose and the most to gain would be most likely to rise up successfully. But history just doesn't prove that to be true. So there are these puzzles and as Malcolm Gladwell says, puzzles are different than mysteries. Um, puzzles are those things which uh, we just haven't figured out yet, where the data probably exists and it's just too complex for us to understand and put the puzzle together. Mysteries, we hardly even understand what the puzzle is, and we don't even know what data is necessary to understand it. And which, which category would you put social movements in? I think it's... Um, it's somewhere between a, a mystery and a puzzle. I think we're a long way from really understanding them. Yet they exist, and um, we understand them best in um, in metaphor. Um, Let me offer you an intuition that I I hold, and that I find many many other people hold, and just ask you what your thoughts are about it. The first part of the intuition is the dark side. It is a sense that the current 
uh, structure of political, economic, and social organization is deeply unsustainable, and that we are moving into a critical phase in which a series of shocks is likely to lead to uh, uh, a very disrupted uh, period of human history and, and in now indeed the, the story of the earth. The second part of the intuition is that the global civil society movement is a, a kind of global intuitive, if you will, response that is gathering such extraordinary power that it represents the primary force for building resilience and building the capacity to create uh, new structures on the uh, debris and what is left of uh, the uh, existing system after the coming set of shocks uh, uh, take place. Now, I offer that as, I think, a widely shared intuition among uh, many communities of people. And I wonder two questions. One is, do you happen to share that intuition? And secondly, uh, that intuition is really quite different from the, the sociological analysis that you described, because it suggests that there's a level at which uh, human beings aren't just operating from self-interest and therefore decide whether to be free riders or not, a kind of an economic analysis, but really that there's a deep sense of connectedness, of oneness, a sense that we really all can only do this if many of us do it together, and therefore that at the deepest level of ourselves we are moved toward collective action to build resilience as a system that cannot be sustained collapses. And I'm just curious what your thoughts about that are. Well, um, I, it's, it's very interesting, and I, I, um, it's consistent with what I believe and what I see um, in most respects. Um, I think that one of the things that you touched on very briefly um, is resilience. And it's another field that, along with social network analysis, um, is becoming one that fascinates me for some clues to um, how social change works and how social movements contribute to social change, and how, and, and in answer to your question about this, and what I've come to feel, and I'm not positive, but there is um, uh, a growing correlation, it seems to me, between um, uh, the understanding of the importance of resilience in ecosystems and the the importance of resilience in social systems and should become, therefore, a goal in social movements uh, and social movement funding. In other words, uh, resilience is that characteristic that, allow, that at, a, at a most basic level, allows survival. And what resilience does, we often talk about strengthening. Our, in fact, our mission statement says that we strengthen the grassroots environmental movement. And I was recently asked to sort of say more about um, that uh, the entire mission statement, of which there are seven operative ideas, but one of them is strengthened. I thought, well, what does that mean? You know, there's different kinds of strength. Some of them are brute force, and some of them are very subtle. 
Um, and resilience, it turns out, is uh, uh, you know its its most important elements are very subtle. And let me again use the analogies that I think help explain this best. Um, and that is in in conservation biology, there's been a paradigm shift around um, on, around uh, fire suppression uh, that that's gone like this: is that it was so evident to everyone that forest fires a hundred years ago were totally destructive without any real study of it or comparison to um, you know the kind of scientific experimentation you'd expect forestry. Um, foresters to do, um, and conservation biologists, of course, discovered over the course of the last 50 years that the fire suppression of the previous 100 years had actually reduced the resilience of forests and created a crisis in, for, in, in, in ecosystem health. And that um, uh, being the ability of the forest to, to uh, develop all sorts of diverse organisms that had a relationship to one another that, while they weren't understood, were obviously critical to the adaptation of the ecosystem and, and its inhabitants. And, and so uh, resilience became uh, the dominant theme of, of, um, of, of conservation biology in the last 20 years. In the last 10 years, sociologists have looked at this and said, you know, this sounds a lot like the um, social systems we see and the, the importance of diversity in them and how they... There are traps that, um, fire, that, that fires seem to be all bad and disruption in social systems seem to be all bad when, in fact, they're essential to health. So the equivalent of a forest fire may be uh, the Battle of Seattle over the, in, in 1999 when the WTO created a political opportunity. The World Trade Organization. That's right. And, and the riots that brought the world's attention to the, the problems of economic globalization for the very first time in a pulse sort of way um, is an example of the kind of way in which social systems build resilience to um, uh, emerging dominant uh, forces. Now, the other, the, the other um, analogy here is, the, is that's, that's often used in the literature, and there's not much, but a good book that just came out is called Getting to Maybe, um, uh, these are by a group of sociologists adapting what's being called resilient science to the social sciences. And that book is by um, Francis Wesley, is one of the three authors. And um, uh, anyway, the, the other analogy they often use of a complex adaptive system that is all about resilience is the immune system. And the, one of the key features of the immune system that sticks with me in reading this stuff is that it's its main value is that it can um, protect against unknown threats, which is the kind of threats that we often face in social movements. And, of course, the immune system is not an isolated system, but uh, psychoneuroimmunology is the field that brings together all the major systems of the body, pointing out that you can't really have a healthy immune system unless you have a healthy neurological system and unless you have uh, a psychological system that works. Indeed, as you were talking, I just uh, wrote down four areas where resilience theory, I think, is uh, bringing together many convergent trends. Ecology, health, culture and social movements, and consciousness. And it seems to me that at all four levels, at the global level of ecology, at the individual level and the community level of health, 
at the uh, what you speak of as social movements, but I would include culture, and finally at the level of consciousness, that uh, in order to uh, create a sustainable and just world, uh, we need resilience in the face of the coming shocks and the existing shocks at all four levels. Right. Very interesting. And, you know, I think that there are, and, and uh, unfortunately, we're off, and I say unfortunately because we're often left with um, comparisons to other things, as I just did and as you did. It's very, there, it's hard to accumulate um, uh, direct examples, but I think it's beginning to happen. And all of those four fields you mentioned can probably, um, the best people in those fields, in listening to this conversation, would probably come up with um, the specific examples in their field, the way the conservation biologists did when, when they were asked to characterize what they learned about the. the uh, their mistaken understanding about uh, forest fires and the resulting forest fire suppression policy. Um, everybody in their field, but not in other fields, as they develop an expertise that is deep and focused, uh, probably um, understands things that they can't explain to others about their field. That's certainly my experience when I talk to um, physicists, for instance, and who try to explain gravity to me, for example. I know they understand something here that I'm not comprehending. Um, but at any rate, that's why it's important to develop a system like we have at Green Grants where we find and trust those people who see and understand things with both deep penetration and a wide peripheral view about uh, how to allocate resources to achieve the goals or even a better understanding of how to get to the goals uh, even if they themselves don't fully understand it. Um, but the one thing I wanted to say, Michael, that I, I'm not sure, I, I, I'm simply not sure where I'm at on it, is whether we're at some uh, crisis point. Um, and I say that because I'm, I'm by nature a skeptic, and it just seems that too often we all think we're living in the apocalypse time. And we can't all be living in the apocalypse time or in some critical moment, or maybe we can, I don't know, but it doesn't, you know, if there, if there is a, a time when, when all of the cards are, are stacked up for some uh, cal uh, uh, calamity, uh, you know, it may be because the earth is near its carrying capacity. Um, other than that, I think we're just about like everybody who came before us, and that many of them probably thought, that they were at some critical juncture in human history or in, or in geologic history, and most of them weren't. Chet, before we open the line so that others can comment, and I certainly have more questions as well, could you give us uh, the web address where people can find Global Green Grants? Oh, sure. It's um, very intuitive. It's greengrants.org. Chad, I want to thank you for this wonderful conversation on intuition and social movements, and thank you for being with us. In My episode. pleasure. Thank you, Michael. So, well, Chet, that was really wonderful. Uh, and I uh, want to, please don't be shy, folks. Uh, any questions or comments for Chet? Please give your name. Hi, this is Molly Jones, and I wonder what um, work you're doing in India. 
in India, Molly, um, we have an advisory board of about six or seven people who um, are focused primarily on uh, toxics. And in, I'm, I'm saying it be, that way because in each country and each region, the board sets their own um, priority issues, and some of them are very broad. Um, in, in Russia, for instance, in the Russian Far East and Siberia, they focus more on forests and fisheries. But in India, we happen to have chosen advisors who are especially experienced in the toxics movement that grew out of the Bhopal disaster in 1984, I believe it was. And so we fund a lot of very small uh, groups that don't have access to uh, the major funders, of which there are a lot in India. India actually gets a lot of foreign aid and has a, a quite a lot of, um, of uh, wealth internally as well, and a reasonable history of uh, philanthropy, both formal and semi-formal and informal, even um, some um, philanthropy by poor people. Um, so we've tended to try and put the little bit of money that we have, and again, I think the budget for India is in the range of $150,000 a year, maybe not quite that much this year, and it's focused on the, on the, uh, the toxics movement. And, and really cutting-edge activism, in other words, um, not quite like what I was describing of the strategy in, in China, which is more um, um, uh, middle-of-the-road, you might say. In, China, in India, there, there's, a, there's an element of militancy. Um, for example, I know that um, some of our grants have been used to help um, uh, organize and promote a hunger strike by Bhopal victims that began um, earlier this month. And, and so it's the kind of uh, citizen activism that is fairly common in India uh, in the Gandhian tradition. Right. Good. Thank you. Other questions and comments? Uh, this is Lenore Leffer. Uh, my question was about South America and what kinds of uh, events are happening there that you're connected to. In um, South America, we have um, three advisory boards. Um, in, in all of Latin America, we have five, uh, one for Mexico, one for Central America. In South America, there's one for Brazil, um, which is easy enough to understand since mm -hmm. they have a different language. And, uh, and then there's one for the Andes region and one for the Southern Cone, once again comprised of between three and five people each. Uh, in Brazil, we've actually been doing grant-making longer than anywhere else. Um, in a formal way or even a semi-formal way, Green Grants started right after the Earth Summit in Rio in 1992 when um, a couple of activist donors, one Brazilian and one American, met each other and realized they'd both been doing um, a similar kind of approach to small grants in Brazil. Um, one of them in the Amazon and the other, the Brazilian, realized there was a lot of money flowing into the Amazon region. Not enough, mind you, but still it meant that there were even bigger gaps uh, in in resource-starved parts of the country that were neglected by um, those that were funding in the Amazon, so that board is fairly mature. Most of the they're the same, mostly the same advisors for that entire period. And two years ago, with uh, the Brazilian advisors, Green Grants helped to set up the first of what we call the Green Grants Alliance of Funds. 
Uh, it's a uh, structure, a legally independent structure, for small grant making and fundraising in Brazil and elsewhere. Um, it's our way of trying to reduce the long-term dependency on support from the north in emerging economies like Brazil that are beginning to generate enough wealth and value that um, with, in, in, without, at this stage in Brazil, much of a tradition of organized philanthropy, we want to channel uh, the appreciation for nature and the concern about the environment that we see there into active environmental philanthropy. And so CASA, as it's called, um, the, uh, Bra the, the Brazil Green Grants Fund, is now set up uh, to do that. So they're at a different stage of development and sophistication than the Andes region or uh, the Southern Cone region. But there, there are two other things I'll say very quickly. And you can find out more on our website, or I'd be happy to, um, you know, continue the discussion either by email or by phone later. But in the Andes region, we work a lot on mining issues. Um, it's a mineral-rich region with very poor countries where the distribution of wealth generated from the mines there does not compare favorably, uh, especially in comparison to the public health threats that come along with the mining operations. In the southern cone, um, there are large uh, development projects like the Hydrovia project, a World Bank-funded project that's been underway for 15 years to channelize, to dredge and channelize parts of the southern South America rivers to uh, enable uh, ocean-going vessels to penetrate deep into the continent to export everything from soy to um, uh, to um, sugar cane. Uh, and beef and so forth. Um, so there is a concern right now among all three advisory boards in South America about a new wave of um, both public and private financing for um, an infrastructure project called IRSA. And frankly, I can't remember what it stands for. That's an acronym, of course. But the three boards are doing joint grant making uh, to bring a public voice uh, to the table in the debate about IRSA, this um, region-wide infrastructure development project, for, uh, particularly around energy issues, including some energy issues that appear on the surface to be renewable and sustainable, like um, biofuels and so forth, but that are changing the agricultural economy of the entire continent. So those are a few of the issues we work on. Is that, is that what you mean? That's exactly what I mean, and thank you for a very full uh, response to my question. Appreciate that very much. Lenore, uh, let me ask you, uh, you've thought a lot about intuition, and mm. as you listen to this conversation, how do you understand uh, intuition uh, in your work and in uh, uh, how you see the world? Right. Well, it's interesting. Uh, the one place in what uh, Chet was saying that um, sort of got my hackles up a bit had to do with your statement about intuition being the last resort. Uh, I don't remember exactly what you said. I was looking for a pencil when you were saying it. Um, but I, I don't see it as a last resort. I see it, um, you know, in, in the world of science that you're obviously connected to, and importantly so, uh, the intuition I don't think is as valued uh, as it is in probably psychological work, uh, but essential. 
Um, I, I see it as a first-line experience that um, provides a tremendous amount of information that then needs to be connected to the mind. So if I have an intuition about some psychological experience that I'm working with with a patient, um, we then need to figure out how to make it happen, which is exactly what you are doing, except in a very different way. So the intuition and the mind uh, need very much to be connected in order to make that intuition manifest. Um, so that's one of the ways I think about the value of intuition and also its need to be connected to other functions um, in the human being. Chet, do you have a comment on that? I do. It's very interesting, and I, I think, and I agree with you. And I, I, I'm sure I said it the way um, you recalled it, and but it wasn't complete. And what I think is that. You're absolutely right that it's the first resort, but I also think it is the last resort. In mm-hmm. other words, the way those two things work is that um, it's the first resort because it's what makes it possible for us to make all kinds of perfect decisions instantly throughout our daily life. Right. Um, and we do all of that without thinking, hence mm-hmm. the name of Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, um, you know, no one could train the body to do what what blinking does for it. Mm-hmm. And we all do that and, and all the time. And occasionally, and actually fairly rarely in terms of the important things in life, do we run up against um, problems. But, of course, that's where we get obsessed and we spend all of our time dwelling mm-hmm. on, on answering problems that we can't solve. Well, if they're important mm-hmm. enough and we try hard enough and we still don't have proof of a solution, then we resort back to intuition mm-hmm. because as um, one of the things that I have often said that when Michael and I have done these presentations to grant makers on the use of intuition um, is that um, uh, it's, it's, it's valuable in cases of ambiguity and, and rapidly changing circumstances and mm-hmm. um, um, I've just forgotten the, the, the point I wanted to make here about um, how, oh, I know what it is. It's, it's this, that um, we need to use intuition, um, even though it's imperfect, um, in situations where the cost of not acting is greater than the, the cost of uh, waiting until we have um, uh, a perfect solution. Absolutely. And that is the, often the case in um and in social change, and I'm sure it's the case in, in medicine. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the um, things I wanted to point out here is the, is the February 26th issue of Time magazine, page 52, has a very interesting article called Are Doctors Just Playing Hunches? And it's about, um, it's about uh, evidence-based medicine. And they discussed some of these same issues. And um, Michael and I had a chance to explore some on the edges of this, especially uh, with the uh, Grantmakers in Health meeting last month in Miami, where folks who fund in the health field uh, understand, of course, better than most the, the balance between the, um, the art and science of, of medicine. Mm-hmm. In this article, one of the things that they point out is that some things are so obvious they don't need to be tested in a scientific way, including defibrillation uh, for a heart in asystole. Mm-hmm. That they say that it's never there's actually never been a, a you know a, a double blind study <laughs> in the classic way that such things should be tested. B- 
because it's apparent that you know the alternative of doing nothing to a heart in asystole is mm-hmm. uh, is not the, the odds of success are not very good. Right, right. And so um, apparently, in in uh, the health field, uh, it, it, there's a there's a slow unveiling, and maybe you all can say more about this of uh, the importance of of using hunches. Um, Especially when the the uh, consequences of waiting until a perfect solution is developed will result in all sorts of suffering. Are there other questions or comments? Mm, I have a comment. This is Molly. I I'm what I'm thinking is that intuition is also our source of resilience. That's beautiful, Molly. Mm-hmm. That more and more I find when I if I'm deeply connected to my own intuition and believe in something, then I have the strength and I can find the courage to go forward with it. What a beautiful comment. That is nice. I have a question for all of you. Do you think intuition can be learned or taught? Well, Nora, why don't you take a shot at that? Well, I, I'm glad to be asked that question. Uh, the one thing I wanted to say uh, to finish the comments that I was making is that I think that when the intuition gets utilized, um, it's not exactly like a muscle, but it can be strengthened in the sense that you know that it's a resource, as Molly is saying, uh, to be relied upon. And I don't think you can call upon it in the same exact way that you can a muscle. Um, but once it is utilized and it becomes part of a person's psychological approach to understanding things about themselves or the world, uh, that it becomes more accessible. Um, but it doesn't seem to work, uh, you know, like in a creative process. It doesn't work on demand, but the possibility of using it, I think, increases the more it's utilized and trusted. Uh-huh. Chet, my response to that would be that there are, it's important to distinguish different forms of intuition. One form of intuition is when we're face-to-face with someone, the things that we can gather from direct uh, neurophysiological input, from micro-expressions, from uh, just all kinds of physical data, from pheromes. Uh, we're flooded with data. We know more about that person than we can say. So there's the direct intuition of reading and scanning uh, a field in a direct way. But there are also the forms of intuition that are connected with uh, uh, what are called psi phenomena, uh, which we did a call with Dean Radin on Entangled Minds. And the the data is very strong that uh, 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 that, uh, people know more then can be accounted for even at a distance, even if they, you know, aren't physically right next to the situation. And it seems to me important to distinguish, uh, although they're on a continuum, those different forms uh, of intuition. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the people I hope to uh, speak with before long is, uh, is Richard Tarnas, who's written a new book called Cosmos and Psyche. And uh, his point is that the the existing current scientific paradigm is that the cosmos is a body of uh, completely unalive rocks and things floating around in space and that there's no consciousness or no uh, uh, 
you know, there's nothing alive about it. Uh, but uh, a recent scientific paper has suggested that uh, really it would be more fruitful to look at the cosmos as a living system. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, the, the old vision and the wisdom schools of the cosmos was that it was a living system. And there's really no strong scientific basis uh, to make a judgment about that one way or the other. The question is, which is the more fruitful hypothesis? When we talk to Dean Radin, there's a beautiful line in his book in which he asks whether uh, the intuitive forms that we call psi phenomena aren't really the universe simply listening to itself. So it just seems to me that we have only begun to tap uh, the depths of the question of what intuition is uh, and to take it beyond its more obvious manifestations as knowing more than we can account for in face-to-face relationships and to look deeply at the question of why we can also know more uh, about uh, distant things or things that we in principle have no direct way of knowing uh, than we can explain. Interesting. I was just reading this morning, actually, a review of a new book by Douglas Hostetter, you know, the um, author of that 1980 book, uh, what was it called, Something Escher and Bach, Yeah. Um, which is, gets to some of these same issues. Um, and apparently is a new book out um, called, oh, goodness, I'm going to look it up here while I'm talking, but it... it um, Hostetter is a, a mathematician, and he, um, in this in this review, talks about how um, um, one of the one of the most interesting and challenging parts of mathematics is those things that appear to be true even though they can't be proven. Right. Um, and uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm I'm looking for the name of this book, but if you look up if you look at uh, Amazon or something for Doug Hostetter's latest book. Um, we'll find it. It will. Um, yeah. It will. Um, I think contribute to uh, this understanding. So, what, what, uh, Michael, is what you're saying by that uh, that you think that those two types of intuition are some are more learnable or less learnable than others? I wasn't commenting on learnability, though I would point out that in the uh, wisdom traditions that the the practice uh, of, uh, for example, just take yoga, that uh, a deep practice of yoga leads to what are called siddhi or, uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of side effects that include many things that we would call Uh, intuition in the broader sense of knowing things that we have no possible way of knowing. Mm -hmm. And so I think the wisdom traditions have pointed to this as something that happens to many people as they immerse themselves more deeply uh, in uh, the psychophysiological practices of, uh, or the heart practices of a wisdom tradition. So I'm not sure it's learnable in the direct sense, uh, but I think it happens as we open ourselves to our greater selves and to the cosmos in some sense. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm pressing this because I'm curious as a, as a sort of practical doer. I, I'm looking for ways to take what I've sensed is an 
uh, is a remarkable interest in this subject and make it meaningful for our network. I mean, mostly I've been doing it outside of our network or to the extent that our network of donors is important to us. But um, I have a very hard time figuring out um, a comfortable way to raise it and make it useful to our advisors and grantees and even our staff. And um, part of what I realize is that, you know, because of this taboo about intuition, there's a discomfort level. And in philanthropy, and I think this is the chord that it strikes, Michael, when you and I have done this workshop, is that um, people, especially professionals in philanthropy, are just so relieved to have somebody say the word um, because they all know that's what they're doing most of the time, but they're, they're expected to provide proof uh, for things that they know are not provable. And so it validates a process that they're using and helps lift the taboo, um, which enables learning. Um, but beyond that, I don't know um, how far it can go. Well, Chet, that's a perfect point on which to suggest that we might have another conversation about this at some later point, and to thank you for being with us today. It's been a, a really wonderful conversation, and we're all deeply grateful to you. Well, thank you. It's my, my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. And uh, one last note. I just found that Douglas Hostetter's new book is called I Am a Strange Loop, L-O-O-P. I Am a Strange Loop. Yeah. Ah, what a wonderful title. <laughs> Thanks to you all for being with us. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Michael. Bye-bye. Bye.